On the 21st of February 2022, Russian troops crossed into Ukrainian territory. It was a monumental escalation of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, which began with the annexation of Crimea and support of pro-Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine. As the Russo-Ukrainian war intensifies and more lives are lost or ruined, many of us have been thinking about the morality of such conflicts. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on the ethics of war. Welcome to the City Politics Podcast. Today, we'll be talking about a topic that is probably on people's minds more than it was a year ago. It's the ethics of war. Isn't that right, Constantine? 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 Oh my God, Constantine's not here this week. We have a scheduling conflict, which means I get to do an episode on philosophy, which is really great for me. Uh, And we have two guests who are world-leading experts on the ethics of war, so we won't be short on conversation. I'm really pleased to introduce Helen Froh, Professor of Practical Philosophy and the Knut and Alice Wallenberg Scholar at Stockholm University, where she directs the Stockholm Center for the Ethics of War and Peace. She's published extensively on the ethics of war and self-defense. She is currently working on a book on the duty of rescue. Welcome to the show, Helen. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We are also joined by Jonathan Perry, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the London School of Economics and an Associated Researcher at the Stockholm Center for the Ethics of War and Peace. His research examines the ethics of war and self-defense. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm hard-pressed to think of a more apposite topic given the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. A lot of people are thinking about the ethics of war. But before we dive into this topic and really pull it apart, we have to do our first segment, Explain it like I'm five, ripped from the pages of Reddit. So I've got a question for you, Jonathan. What is war and how is it different from other forms of political violence? Thanks, David. This is a a trickier one than it sounds, I think. So I think uh, kind of empirically speaking, uh, this is controversial, but here's a a rough definition. Um, We might define war as something like uh, large scale, organized, centralized violence employed by one community against another for political goals, something like that. Now, empirical social scientists often add a few caveats in there. They often say things like, well, it has to pass some sort of threshold of severity. So some of the major data sets, for example, say, you know, unless there are 1,000 battle deaths per year, it doesn't count as a war, but let's leave those complications aside. Yes, this is something that I often talk about with my students when we look at what is a war. Uh, we look at the correlates of war data set, and there's sort of a bit of a debate about whether it's a fair accounting of the actual process of war. But we got to move on. Helen, I have a question for you. What is just war theory? So I don't actually really like the term just war theory. I think it's, it's a bit unhelpful because it suggests that there's this sort of one single theory of when war is just and that we all know what it is and that we can just apply it to to wars and and see whether they're just or not. I prefer to think about um, the just war tradition by which I mean the history of of doing work on the ethics of war and the kinds of topics that tend to be covered in this tradition are things like the justness of resorting to war and so what counts as a just cause for war, the proportionality of war, whether wars are last resort, whether you need to be a legitimate authority in order to wage war permissibly, 
And then a range of um, what we call, um, so those are what we call ad bellum issues traditionally, so about the resort to war. And then there's a range of what are called in bellow issues about things like non-combatant immunity, the treatment of prisoners of war, necessity and proportionality, so the amount of force that one can use in war, and so on. So there's a very broad range of topics that come under the scope of the just war tradition. And that's normally what people are referring to when they talk about just war theory. I think that's a really great introduction to the themes that we'll be discussing in the podcast. So thank you very much. Right. That's the end of Explain It Like I'm Five. And normally I would hand you over to Constantine and he would give the crystal ball. Uh, But today it's me. Uh, So I'll be doing the crystal ball. It's our 10 yes or no questions, which is a mild torture device for academics who love giving detailed answers. But sometimes we have to give a really quick one. Uh, So we're going to start with Helen. We'll do the first five questions. You'll go first, then Jonathan, and then we'll switch it for the last five questions. So are you both ready for the crystal ball? Yes. Okay. Question one. Is the just war tradition inherently conservative? Helen? No. Jonathan? Nope. Is self-defense the only just cause for war? Helen? No. Jonathan? Nope. Is it useful to separate the justice of war, jus ad bellum, from the just conduct of war, jus in bello? Helen? No. Jonathan? Nope. In a hundred years, will the just war tradition remain the predominant way to think about the ethics of war? Yes. Yes. Does the just war tradition have weaknesses? Helen? Yes. Jonathan? Let me use my prediction. It's going to be a yes, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. Okay, let's flip it up. Jonathan, should states fight wars of self-defense when the prospect of success is minimal? No. Helen? No. Can the just war tradition be separated from its theological roots? Yes. Helen? Yes. We're going 10 for 10, listeners. It's going to be great. Seventh question. Jonathan, have technological changes in warfare changed the ethics of war? Nope. Helen? No. Are there times when the gloves can come off and it's acceptable to fight dirty in war? Yes. Yes. And the final question, let's see if we get perfect alignment. Can a preemptive war be a just war? Yes. Yes. And it's perfect agreement. Let's start with the the separation of the justice of war and the just conduct of war. Uh, So I guess the question is driving at the separation between the two. So when philosophers divide just war into two separate components, what are they trying to do in this, Helen? Uh, Why make the division between the justice of a war and the just conduct of a war? I mean, it's pretty unclear what it means, because it's the idea is something like you're kind of dividing moral principles into different sets, and that then you have one set of principles that tell you whether the kind of war as a whole is just. So when you asked me earlier about what just war theory is, I said, well, there's this thing, yes, I'd bellum, which, which governs the resort to war, but it doesn't just govern the resort to war, it's supposed to govern sort of the, the war as a whole. So it's a kind of continual evaluation as, as the war progresses of the justness of the war overall. And then there's supposed to be the separate set of principles that we apply to kind of individual offensives, let's say, or actions uh, that, that make up the war. And so you've got a sort of 
quite strange kind of ontological claims going on here about the distinction between the war as a whole, which just consists in the, the individual actions and offensive that make it up. And then I don't know if the idea is supposed to be something like that you can kind of add those actions together. So you might so think about something like the Allied uh, war against Germany in World War II. Now, most people would say, well, that was an, an overall just war. But we also think that there's lots of things that happened in that war that were unjust. So, for example, the firebombing of Dresden seems like an unjustified action. And is the idea supposed to be that you sort of, nonetheless, if you kind of add these things up, on balance it comes out that we get this verdict that there's this thing called the war that was overall justified. It's very hard to know what that means, and even if you knew what it means, what you'd do with that judgment. Right? I wouldn't tell you anything about whether or not what any particular person did in the war was just or unjust. Uh, right? So knowing that overall there's kind of there's this sort of balance so that something like, I don't know, more than half the actions were justified or something like that. I mean, why is that useful to know? Right? What we want to know is whether specific things that people did were justified or unjustified. And so, so you've got this kind of bizarre way of thinking about the war where you try and sort of, you know, distinguish between the things that make up the war and the war itself. And then you've got this kind of weird moral claim that we do sort of have different principles in some sense to judge these things. But it's very hard to see how anything that, say, was relevant to, say, a political leader's decision about whether to continue to fight the war could just be irrelevant to a soldier who is fighting the war. So imagine the political leaders thinking, well, you know, I've just got no chance of winning this war. Um, should I continue to fight it? I mean, that's clearly relevant to whether a combatant who's ordered to carry out an offensive that's, say, going to kill someone. Surely they should think about whether or not it's going to do any good, right? And if they think, well, there's just absolutely no chance that we're going to win this war, then it seems relevant to what they ought to do. So there isn't this sort of, you know, <laughs> sharp distinction where there's a set of considerations that's relevant to political leaders and another set that's relevant to soldiers and, you know, never the twain shall meet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the whole thing is just, just a very sort of state-driven, I think this comes from this idea that states have a vested interest in this kind of division, right? They have a vested interest in telling soldiers that the overall justness of a war is not their concern. All they need to do is follow orders and they're not worried because then they'll be acting morally permissibly. That's the kind of traditional view of the ethics of war that comes from someone like Michael Walter and just sort of dominates international law. And of course, states want that to be true because states don't particularly want their combatants saying, well, you know, hang on a minute, what if, you know, <laughs> what if they don't want us in Iraq, right? Like, um, so, of course, you can see why states would, would favour um, this picture. Um, but that's certainly no reason for philosophers working on war to endorse it. Right. That's a great answer. Jonathan, do you want to come in on this? I mean, one thing that, you know, I think has been at the forefront of discussions, at least among philosophers who think about the ethics of war over the last few years has been this question that Helen mentioned about what's the relationship between the justice of the war and my participation in it. And I think there's been, you know, a kind of pushback, as Helen pointed out, against the traditional view that, you know, there's what I do in war and there's what my state does by taking us to war. And these are separate things. People tend to, I think, at least among philosophers, think it's much more complicated than that. I think the following kind of very intuitive moral principle <laughs> is what's going on here. The morality of a means is kind of importantly related to the morality of the end that that means is used to pursue. That's a very, very plausible moral principle. I don't think anyone could deny that. But of course, if you apply that to the case of war, it's kind of immediate challenge for the idea that Joseph Bellum and Yusin Bello can be 
maybe we'll give sort of a little bit of a pushback from a traditional theorist. So, you know, if I was thinking along the lines of Michael Walter, I might push something like, oh, well, you know, the moral equality of combatants is actually quite important in terms of, you know, what he, what he says, you know, keeping war from devolving into sort of a state of complete hell, right? You know, he has his war as hell thing. If we tie in together jus ad bellum and jus in bello into sort of one single matrix, then we do sort of have a perhaps a practical problem in the rules that govern war insofar as if I'm fighting for an unjust cause, I might say, well, you know, if I'm fighting for an unjust cause, I might as well do whatever I want, right? Or alternatively, if I'm fighting against an unjust aggressor, I might feel that I can do whatever I want to the combatants of the aggressor. So there is, I think, this concern with traditionalists who might say, well, we can recognize that we might want to look at a more holistic picture, but in doing so, it brings it, well, it brings a certain degree of risk. So I mean, this, is, this is a really good point. And I think when you, know, you have discussions with people, sometimes it's not obvious whether we're arguing about the kind of moral status of the actions in war, kind of taken in and of themselves, or we're thinking more kind of instrumentally. We're thinking about what the kind, right kind of rules or laws that we ought to proclamate and put into law and tell people ought to be. I tend to think these are two quite different questions. So just with you know the, the interpretation of Waltz's view that you put on the table. So I guess one thing we might just say is, is it true <laughs> that one set of rules for regulation would have these effects? No, it seems like a pretty big piece of empirical speculation. If we told people don't fight in wars <laughs> that are unjust, maybe there'd be less wars. You know, maybe states would have less willing participants in injustice. You know, so who, who knows if that's true? Uh, but the second thing I think we want to say is, I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, we might just think the question of what I ought to do and the question of what laws people ought to tell me <laughs> could be quite different, right? You can imagine all sorts of cases where we think, I'm trying to think of a good example, you know, we can have laws which say things are permissible, which aren't, because we think having the law would, for some reason, overall, say, reduce harm. But it doesn't mean the actions that the law governs are therefore morally permissible, right? It might often be, might often be the case that we kind of tell people beneficial <laughs> falsities in order to try and, you know, make their behavior less bad than it would otherwise be. So I guess if we think of the laws of war as having this kind of, you know, harm minimization function, you might think, perhaps it's true that something like the moral equality of combatants could serve that goal. But I think that leaves untouched the claim that when it comes to the actual moral status of the actions that take place in war, um, that's just settled by the question, well, largely settled by the question of whether the war you're fighting in is just or unjust. Great. It's also the, the fact that, I mean, we don't even need to have kind of, you know, empirical speculation to see that the current rules allow war to be pretty hellish, right? So it's not as if the moral equality of combatants means that civilians aren't harmed in war. Um, it's still, on the traditional view, permissible to um, collaterally kill, displace, maim civilians. Um, civilians in many wars make up the majority of casualties. Um, so... No, it's not as if we've got this great system where we can say, look, look how concentrated and, and restricted the harms are. Only this very small subset of people are, any, are ever harmed. Um, that's just not true. And so we've already got really good reason to think that these rules aren't especially effective at constraining war. And of course, if you reject the moral equality of combatants, the fact that you're killing soldiers isn't, you know, it's just as bad as killing civilians. Um, and on some views, on my view. Um, and so it's not as if you're sort of restricting it to just the permissible targets because the combatants are impermissible targets as well and so what you've got is a kind of 
you know, insofar as such rules protected civilians, they would do so at the expense of the combatants' rights against harm. And so we'd have questions about whether it's permissible to um, label combatants legitimate targets in order that um, this would reduce harms to some other subsection of the population. I can see the point, right? Uh, when I read traditional just war theory, and I sort of have my students read traditional just war theory, uh, one of my students once described it as a people trying to apply the Marcus of Queensbury rules of boxing to a riot. And there was sort of, I was just like, well, I think that's overstating the case, but maybe, yeah, maybe it, maybe it is. Uh, so perhaps the rules that we have aren't as good uh, as they could be. Uh, let's pivot back though to tradition, right? So the just war tradition is probably one of the oldest, right? And uh, thinking about the ethics of war, if we go back to say Augustine, Aquinas, Salamanca school, what explains its durability? Because both of you said that uh, it'll still be the main way of thinking about the ethics of war 100 years from now. Uh, so this seems to be a very durable tradition in the ethics of war. Uh, what explains its durability? Uh, Helen? I mean, I said yes, because I think the just war tradition just is work on the ethics of war. And so do I think that work on the ethics of war will be the most popular way to think about the ethics of war in 100 years? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm afraid your question was just kind of trivially true. Um, just suspect is also why Jonathan said yes, because there's simply no other way to think about the ethics of war other than doing the ethics of war. Um, so I don't think that the, the thought is that something like in 100 years time, people will still have um, the views that they had 50 years ago. I mean, I think in a way, Ukraine has been a sort of such a horrific and yet illuminating example of why the traditional view just looks so implausible. I mean, it's certainly, you know, to see a conflict kind of unfold in such, you know, day by day, and you look and you see like how the Ukrainian armed forces are made up of just ordinary Ukrainians who have been called up or who have enlisted, some of them come home from other countries in order to fight. The idea that those people sort of lack rights that other Ukrainians have and are killing those people isn't wrong when the Russian soldiers kill them, they don't do anything wrong. That view is so implausible that Ukraine has just been a kind of very vivid demonstration of why the traditional view is just wrong. Um, and so do I think people will still have those views even in 10 years time? I'd be quite surprised actually if people look even today at the war in Ukraine and say, yeah, I think there's just no difference between the Russian combatants and the Ukrainians. I think they're all on a par. It seems pretty unlikely. Um, so I don't think that you know traditional views will endure in that sense. Why they've endured? Partly, I think, because of something like the popularity of Mott Walser's Just and Unjust Wars, which kind of you know, in the sort of wake of Vietnam, kind of was really you know a very clear, vivid account of one way in which you might think about the ethics of war and it might have just been there just wasn't really much of a challenge to that view around and it's it's very politically convenient for states to endorse that sort of view as we already talked about it's what gets taught in the military academies right so you have this view that this is sort of how soldiers are taught to think about war um, and it's also very convenient for citizens to believe that war is not really their business um, and that it's the business of states and it's not their responsibility so there's all kinds of kind of sociological explanations for why people have this kind of vested interest in thinking of the ethics of war in a particular way. Um, but I don't think actually, we've already seen in the last 20 years, not just a revolution in the ethics of war literature, but also if you think about the, the Not In My Name campaigns about the Iraq war, for example, this kind of real pushback against the idea that we're not responsible for the wars that our governments fight and there's you know, it's nothing to do with us. 
Um, I think there's really been a change in the way that um, as democracy spreads and people become more invested in the sense of their governments as representative of the people, that they do feel that actually they have responsibilities to prevent wars um, and so on. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it will endure in its, in its historical form. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that that makes me think about is regime type and war, right? Because generally when we do the ethics of war, at least in the traditional sense, it very much the state's a black box, right? Uh, what's inside it doesn't really factor in. But based on what you're saying, it seems that democracies at least carry additional responsibilities on citizens to ensure war is at least just or, you know, not engaged with. Uh, but that, what does it tell us about the responsibilities of people living in autocratic states, right? Uh, say the ordinary Russian right now, who doesn't have the same mechanisms of power, what are their responsibilities in relation to the ethics of war? So, I mean, it seems kind of plausible to me that there is a moral asymmetry between citizens of liberal democracies like me and people who live under autocracies in terms of uh, what we are morally required to do in terms of opposing our state's actions. Uh, it seems for two reasons. Uh, one is influence. I presumably have more influence over what my state does than the typical Russian. Uh, second, cost. It's much less costly for me to oppose my state than it is for the typical Russian. Uh, so I think on the basis of those two quite plausible ideas, um, we can draw some distinction between citizens of democracies and citizens of autocracies. Of course, that doesn't mean that if you're a citizen of an autocracy, you know, you get a moral free pass. But it certainly strikes me as uh, implying that the duties they have are um, qualified in various ways, that my duties aren't. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. I mean, we should remember this, this sort of, this degrees of these things, right? So it's not as if there's this, you know, democracy, citizens are responsible, then in other, other regimes they're not, right? So not everywhere is North Korea. Russia isn't North Korea. You know, Russia has had um, relative freedom of movement. So it's perfectly possible for Russians to leave Russia, go elsewhere, access the internet, um, Russian and Russians know that their state controls their media. They know that the government has criminalized the use of the word war to describe what's happening in Ukraine. I mean, they have lots of signals about um, to, to indicate that the war is unjustified. Of course, it is, as Jonathan said, it's very costly um, for them to resist in a way that it's not for, say, a British person to protest the um, UK's role in, in Iraq. Um, and that, that matters what people can be expected to do. And I think it also matters for the costs that we can impose on people. So for sanctions and so on, um, we should think about the fact that many Russian citizens would have very few opportunities to, to have done otherwise or to have influenced the outcome of this war and so on. And so um, that does bear on the, the costs that we can impose on them. And it might be that citizens in democracies, actually, you can Im impose higher costs and they ought to be prepared to bear, incur more costs when their governments fight unjust wars, precisely because they could have done more perhaps to stop it. I mean, one additional point on this as well is that, I mean, responsibility doesn't track borders particularly well. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that I'm a British citizen doesn't just make me responsible for things that happen in Britain. I think it also makes me partly responsible for all the things that happen in other countries as a result of British policies. Think about UK government's <laughs> ambiguous relationship with Russia over the last 20 years doesn't strike me that I can say well you know any individual responsibility I bear as a member of the uh, British public stops once we get to the channel 
There might be members of the government who disagree with that, uh, but uh, but I think uh, we're probably all in agreement on the sort of scope. At least, sort of, we we did cosmopolitanism uh, a few few weeks ago. Um, so there's just you know the idea that we have duties beyond our borders. I think is is relatively uncontroversial. Um, let's talk about the technological changes, right? War seems very different than it was, say, 50 years ago, right? With the emergence of things like unmanned drones, the emergence of sort of the new warfare, cyber warfare, changes in technology change warfare. This has been true across sort of uh, the historical sweep of uh, human history. Uh, both of you say that this doesn't change the ethics of war. Uh, and I sort of, I'm interested as to why, because a lot of people look at the way war is fought today and see that it's radically different. And they think that this might change the way that we should think about it. So what keeps things fixed relatively? The fact that the moral principles that determine whether or not you're allowed to harm someone stay fixed. And whether you're doing it with a bow and arrow or a long range missile or with a drone or with a landmine, um, you know, the, the technique by which you're going to kill them just isn't really very important. Uh, what matters is whether you're allowed to kill them. And what's going to make that true or false is ahistorical. Um, so, you know, those, those moral principles have always been true and will always remain true. Um, moral philosophy is about finding out what they are. It's not about sort of, um, there's this sort of a trend in, in a lot of the literature on, on things like cyber warfare to um, talk of cyber warfare as falling into a kind of theoretical vacuum as if it somehow falls outside the scope of morality. And quite often people say things like, you know, we need to come up with new moral principles. We've got to invent a new moral theory, you know, just cyber warfare or whatever. And you just think that's such a weird view of morality. It's the sort of, you know, you get to the edge of the earth and then you just drop off. Right? I mean, it really is the, sort of the equivalent of a flat earth view, right? That, you know, there's this sort of the morality's got this far and no further. And then someone went and invented drones, right? And God, you know, we just got just no idea what to say about these things because we haven't invented the right principles yet. I mean, what a weird view. That's why Jonathan and I, I imagine, I just don't want to speak for Jonathan, um, <laughs> but I suspect that's why we're, we're in agreement is because um, the means by which you kill someone is not terribly morally important. Um, that's not to say these things don't raise interesting philosophical questions. Um, and one of the things that's nice about working on the ethics of war is interesting about it is that thinking about, I mean, war throws off a lot of kind of interesting cases about things like responsibility and causation um, and authority, right? So the general philosophical concepts that we should be interested in. And it can tell us how good our theories of those things are, right? So if you've got a theory of responsibility that really struggles to capture something like how combatants can be responsible for wrongdoing in war, then that's a strike against your theory of responsibility. And just like in the same way, you know, if, if you think that um, there's interesting causation questions about cyber, um, then you want an account of causation that, that can capture the way in which cyber can cause harm. And if your account can't do that, then that's a strike against your account of causation. So it's very much a kind of, people sometimes think of the ethics as war as applied ethics in a sort of one-way street sort of way that you might do some moral theory and then just plug it into war. But really good work on the ethics of war also looks at war and thinks what that tells us about our moral theories. Um, but so there, there might be that sort of sense in which technology you know, raises sort of, you know, makes us think about, raises problems for existing moral views that we have in a range of moral questions and philosophical questions. But, you know, the idea that there's sort of some radical moral difference, if I kill you from far away using a drone versus 
killing you in person with a knife. Um, I mean, that's just a really strange view. Well, quite a lot of agreement. I, I guess I would probably just add that there's kind of a trivial way in which kind of new technologies might be kind of morally distinctive. It might just be that their effects are different, right? So which there's no difference in the moral principles, but it might just turn out that kind of what you're doing has kind of, is kind of different in non-moral ways from other things you might be doing. And therefore the kind of moral, you know, first order sort of moral judgments you make on the basis of those effects would be different. So you know, even example, I'm a silly one, right? You know, imagine I've got a weapon that kills, will kill lots of people as a side effect. Oh, I invent some other weapon which will kill less people as a side effect. Well, they have different effects, right? So it might turn out that one weapon is permissible, whereas another weapon is not. But, you know, that's just because, you know, when you're causing harm to people, you ought to cause less harm than you than an alternative, or you're, the harm that you cause ought to be proportionate. And therefore, you know, when you use different means, obviously, there's a trivial sense in which you're going to get different moral results. But yeah, that doesn't tell you anything about, it doesn't give us any reason to think that moral principles are different, obviously. You know, moral principles applied in different contexts yield different results just because you know, the facts are different. Great. Yeah, I think this brings into clarity a really simple element of when we think about the ethics of war. And it is ultimately about when is it permissible or excusable to kill other human beings, which is perhaps the most taboo thing that another person can do, right? Uh, so the fact that this doesn't change regardless of historical context really should not be that surprising. Uh, but you would be probably surprised. Our listeners might have only had this thought for the first time, right? Because people seem to think that technology changes our fundamental relationships with other people. But I think we've gotten a very good answer here as to why that might not be the case. So thinking on sort of justifying sort of political violence uh, leads us to the sort of when can we do this, right? And probably the most obvious instance where we can uh, sort of engage in war is self-defense, which both of you work on. So perhaps we should talk a little bit about what self-defense looks like when we're talking about war. Is it simply analogous to individual self-defense? Because this is what students often think. They think, okay, yeah, you know, if someone is coming at me, wants to hurt me, then I have the right to defend myself. Is it simply the same in the, with the state, but at a larger scale? Uh, Jonathan, perhaps you want to start us with that one. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I guess when you ask most people who think killing is wrong, uh, you know, you give them the example of self-defense, you know, the, you know, what would you do if your grandma was being attacked by a gunman kind of thing? And most people think, oh, no, there is a, an exception to this moral prohibition. So I think a lot of people use this as a, a lever to start thinking about the ethics of war. And the question of what the relationship between the ethics of individual self-defense and defensive war is one of the kind of big talking points, I think. In the, in the philosophical debates. And very roughly, you might think there's two kind of ways of thinking about it. So the one view you might say, well, the state is kind of like a super person. So it's some of Waltz's uh, you know, descriptions of his view seem to kind of lend support to this interpretation. So the state is like a big person and you know, the state has these rights of self-defense, uh, which are kind of just like an individual's. Another way of thinking about it, which I think is the way that me and Helen are more sympathetic to, is to think of um, you know, justified war as kind of an aggregation of lots of individual persons' rights to use violence to defend their important rights. So that's maybe a, a way of kind of trying to frame, frame the question. Should we think of states as like super people or do we think of states as just kind of, you know, shorthand for saying all the people in the community that the state represents? And I think me and Helen are much more sympathetic to the second view than the first view. 
each have their sort of their, their implications, obviously. So, so one implication of, of the um, the view that the second view that that um, we're really talking just about the kind of the aggregation in some sense of all of the individuals' rights is that, for example, the amount of force a state is permitted to use to defend itself will presumably vary depending on how many people's rights are at stake. Um, um, some people think that that's not true. They think that um, sovereignty is this kind of fixed good and that, um, and they think it would be weird to believe that how much force a state is allowed to, to use to defend itself would depend on how populous the state is, right? Because it does mean that you get this result that very densely populated states um, or states of very large populations, I should say, um, are permitted to use more force because more people's rights are at stake. Now that just seems to me like the obviously true view because in general, it's just true that the more people's rights and interests are at stake, the more force you can use. Um, but if you have this sort of different view that, well, you know, that's unfair to smaller states or so, you know, you might, you might, that might be a reason why you prefer the kind of Waltzerian picture of the, the state as a sort of person in its own right. And then it's sort of all states would be on a par in that sense, right? Because they'd all just be these super people. Um, but I don't think that's a, that's a very plausible view. I think that sort of is a good segue into thinking about uh, the last question that I asked in the crystal ball about preemptive war. Uh, both of you said that preemptive wars can be just, but this has been a sort of fairly big debate, both in sort of the ethics of war and in practical politics. Uh, the Americans sort of famously used preemptive justifications uh, in Iraq in 2003. If we look at the statements that uh, Putin has made with regards to Ukraine, he's frames it as preemptive war. So it seems to be quite problematic. And maybe we should talk about the prevention preemption distinction and whether we think this holds water at all. It's a little bit hard to exactly say what the difference is between these things, but we can say something like preventive wars kind of try to stop people from kind of um, having the capacity to threaten, whereas a preemptive war is kind of further down the line where, say, you, you already know that someone's got the nuclear weapon and you want to stop them from using it, uh, as opposed to, say, uh, preventive, where you try and stop them from developing the capacity to have nuclear weapons in the first place. So that might be one way to think about this difference, but it's going to be... In, in some sense, also just a matter of degree, because it's very hard as a matter of causation to work out when a, when a threat counts as, you know, sort of being sufficiently well-developed that you'd now call a war preemptive rather than preventive. Um, but in a way, I think it doesn't really matter. What matters is something like the likelihood that this person's going, this state's going to cause harm and the likely costs of, um, of waiting to defend yourself. So let's say that, you know, you would in fact be permitted to defend yourself against this actualized threat. So let's say, to clear a state would be permitted to defend itself against a nuclear attack and then we would have the question of well at what point would the cost of waiting be such that it would be wrong to continue to wait even though there's this standard view that um, there's a principle of last resort that you know the use of force must always be the last thing that you do um, actually that's just a kind of slightly um, hammed up version of the of the necessity constraint which just says use the least harmful means um, and least harmful means is going to be worked out in some way about what are, what are the costs of the thing, the, the range of alternative actions that you have in front of you. And in some cases, the risk or the, predict, or the predicted cost of waiting would be so high that actually you, you'd be justified in using force earlier because um, that's the best way to try and minimise the expected costs. So I don't think that there's any really weighty moral difference between preventive and preemptive war. Um, so there was a lot of fuss made about it when in sort of 2002, the Bush 
administration kind of issued this, this document, um, the national security strategy saying that they were now going to be thinking about preventive war. Uh, but in fact, really what that means is simply, you know, it, it might well, I'm not saying that the Bush administration's policies were justified, but just in general, you know, it might well be morally required that you act sooner rather than later because acting later is going to be much more risky. I mean, I guess just one kind of thing to bear in mind here is a kind of sense in which like it's a necessary condition of any use of harm being justified that it's preemptive in some sense. Because, right? mm. you know, justification is forwards looking, right? It's like, you know, if, if Helen punched me yesterday, it doesn't give me a justification for punching her now, right? It's just kind of revenge, you know, in order for me to be justified in using harm, at least under a kind of defensive justification, right? It has to prevent something from happening in the future that would be bad for me. So as Helen pointed out, you know, once, I think, once we accept that, we can see, I mean, Helen's point even more strongly, like, you know, it's going to be a matter of degree, right? Um, there's not this kind of box of permissible non-preventive or non-preventive war, and then this kind of box of impermissible preemptive or pre preventive war, kind of all, all justified harm is going to have this um, preemptive or even preventive character to it. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the other conditions that attach to the just war uh, tradition. Uh, we talked about uh, the prospect of success. And both of you said that states shouldn't fight wars where the prospect of success is minimal. Uh, this has always been a slightly curious condition to me, at least, uh, insofar as there seem to be instances where the prospect of success is minimal, but the war seems intuitively justifiable. Uh, we might sort of think, well, I mean, I guess so the current crisis in Ukraine is an example of this, where you know people thought that perhaps the Ukrainians weren't going to be able to hold back the Russian invasion. Or we might think of Poland in 1939 uh, fighting on two fronts against the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. Uh, it seems that they had very minimal prospect of success, but to say that they shouldn't have fought seems intuitively difficult uh, for most people. Uh, so I was interested in the process of justification on this. Jonathan, perhaps you want to start us on this one. Yeah, so I think this is quite a tricky topic and I think maybe my, mine and Helen's answers probably um, obscured maybe some you know doubts on our part but so I think he, I mean here's one reason why we, we answered in the way we did I think here's an extremely plausible moral principle don't do bad things unless you bring about good things now when a war is very unlikely to bring about good things but it involves lots of terrible things killing innocent people I think the default view should be that um, you ought not to fight um, and then we need a kind of interesting argument to explain, I guess, the intuition that there are these cases um, in which kind of hopeless fighting does seem permissible. Um, but I, I would start from the kind of you know, the theoretical sort of idea first and try and work really hard to try and think about whether my intuition about those cases is defensible. I mean, one more point on this is just kind of, it also kind of depends on what we mean by success, right? So. You know, take the case of Poland. Well, obviously they weren't going to they weren't going to push back the Nazis and the Soviets, but they certainly uh, slowed the Nazis and the Soviets down, thereby kind of making a contribution, maybe a very significant contribution, um, to the to the war effort. Right. So kind of it's a bit tricky as well, I think, to try and just get clear on whether the cases we're considering are really cases of genuinely no hope of success, or whether really we just have competing notions of what exactly success consists in. I mean, maybe the classic example often used in this, this discussion is the case of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Maybe not technically a war by kind of the official definition, um, but it certainly looked like a case of the use of force, um, which had absolutely no chance of achieving, um, at least like the vindication of anybody's rights. And that's, I think that's a really tricky case. Yeah, I mean, so I don't think Warsaw really is a tricky case um, because 
I think that, so the Warsaw Ghetto, Ghetto Uprising is a case in which you have people who were going to be killed anyway, forcefully resisting where everybody around them was going to be killed as well. So it's not like they had this worry that they would kill civilians who would otherwise survive, right? So the, the Nazis were going to kill everybody. Now, in a narrow sense, right, um, they, would, they had no chance of, of uh, saving themselves. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't count as a moral good the killing of the German soldiers. Um, so in this case, killing Nazi soldiers was good because the more Nazi soldiers that you kill, the more you undermine the Nazi campaign of aggression and genocide. Um, and so they did have a good that they could achieve and they achieved it. <laughs> you know, they didn't kill all of them, but they killed some of them. And that, that, you know, it was good. Even if you can't save yourself, it was good to kill German soldiers. It's not always true that it's good to kill enemy combatants. And I think Jonathan's right to say that you shouldn't do bad things and that bad things include killing innocent people. But it's also bad sometimes to kill people like uh, who, as we might think of some of the Russian combatants in this war who are perhaps at least partly excused for what they're doing. I don't think that's true of all of them, but I think at least some subset of them will be partly excused. Many of them are very young, right? They've grown up only knowing Vladimir Putin's Russia. They may not have had the kind of opportunities to travel and, you know, imagine growing up educated under, you know, Putin's system. You can see that these people, and they're acting under some duress, right? You can see that these people might have some excuses and killing those people is, is you know, it's morally significant. Um, so that those deaths also need to be factored in um, when you're thinking about using force, which has certainly force that has no prospect of success, but there's a difference in kind between um, force that has no prospect of success and what I think we're really talking about in the war case, which are where we don't really know what the prospect of success is. Um, we think they might have some chance and we think it might be small, but it's hard to know. And I think one of the things that's been interesting about Ukraine is that I think when the war started, it was the prospect of success that was causing various just war theorists to think, well, you know, this war might be unjustified because of the success condition. And then as Jonathan said, there's this question about, well, what counts as success? It has been a sort of challenge because most of us would have thought, I mean, the standard view is um, it would fail the success condition because they were going to be defeated in a week. And so they may as well just fold. Otherwise, people are going to die who didn't need to, to die. And then once you get a month in and, you know, they, the Ukrainians managed to secure Kiev and, 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 you know, the war sort of, you know, it's certainly not going as Russia planned. Certainly Russia hasn't won. Ukraine hasn't won either. And we might start to think, well, in this case, success is something like forcing Russia to accept some kind of compromise, whereas left unhindered, they could have just trampled over Ukraine as much as they wanted to. And it's, I think this has been a, a salutary lesson in some sense to sort of think more carefully about what can count as success. And also, again, that this is something that you evaluate as, as a war progresses. And then there's also the fact that in the face of the fact that the Ukrainians were in fact going to fight, the mere fact that they perhaps ought not to and that the war is technically unjustified might not settle the question of what third parties ought to do. Given that they're going to fight, well, now you've just got a choice still between Russia and Ukraine, and it's pretty, pretty obvious who you want to back in that fight. Um, and so that's just sort of perhaps something else that just war theorists don't think enough about is what follows from labelling a war just or unjustified, because it doesn't look as if the mere fact that Ukraine's war was unjustified, if it was, would say that therefore it would be wrong to support it. I think if they were nonetheless going to fight it, then it was right to support it. Today on like three people agreeing on the radio, uh, I agree with you both. So when I wrote on uh, on the Warsaw Ghetto in, uh, in my book on sort of on resistance, 
looking at it through a just war lens about what success looks like. Well, sometimes success is not survival or victory. It is can be symbolic. It can be slowing people down. Uh, it can be justified in the face of, you know, what Jonathan was saying, you know, extreme human rights threats might warrant, you know, uh, taking the risk on a minimal condition of success. So I think there is sort of a tendency to think of success only in terms of absolute victory, which just doesn't seem plausible when we're talking about any sort of moral evil, right, and the resistance of it. But I think this does sort of sort of feed into another sort of question, the, the penultimate question that I was asking about taking the gloves off, which sort of pertains to Michael Walzer's sort of famous and perhaps controversial. I don't know, why are we talking so much about Michael Walzer? I don't know. Uh, but uh, the idea that there are certain instances where states can break what would normally be considered the conventions in the ethics of war. So for example, his famous example is, you know, in the darkest days of the Second World War, Britain engaged in bombings of civilian uh, city centers in Germany. And he saw this as being justified in the face of defeat to Nazi Germany. This is controversial, I think, to say the least, uh, right? So both of you agreed that there are times where you can fight dirty, so to speak. Why? Uh, well, I think uh, for this one, it probably depends on very much on what we mean by fighting dirty. So I think I interpreted, and possibly Helen did as well, the idea to be something like, are there cases in which it's okay to violate the kind of traditional norms of warfare? So things like non-combatant immunity would be the obvious obvious case or you know perfidy you know dressing up as the enemy or pretending to surrender this kind of stuff and um i think i mean helen especially thinks that um there are cases in which it's um permissible to to violate norms like non-combatant immunity and i agree with her there are cases like this as well so let me give you an example imagine contrary to how the world went um outsiders decided to intervene to try and prevent the rwandan genocide Kind of two ways you can fight. Um, you can fight against the often very young, indoctrinated, abused men who carried out lots of the violence, or you could let's let's assume you know equally equal chances of success. Use force against the journalists who you know encourage the violence um, in the country, against the teachers who instilled hatred in the children, uh, against the older members of the political elites who encouraged it from the sidelines. It strikes me that it'd be much better to. Um, be morally preferable to kill the non-combatants in this case rather than kill the combatants if I had the choice. There's lots of cases in which civilians do things in war that not only make them legitimate targets but make them morally preferable targets to combatants. Of course there are broader questions about um, the, the sort of the wider consequences of undermining conventions which again is, you know that's morally significant but certainly I think it must be true that in some cases, even if you predicted some undermining of the conventions that would have some future poor consequences, you know, there'd be some cases in which they're simply outweighed by the harm that you can prevent by violating the conventions. One interpretation of the question, which me and Helen would certainly disagree with, is perhaps Waltz's, I don't know, more hyperbolic kind of presentation of it, which is something like, you know, when the going gets really tough, kind of morality ceases or morality changes or anything like that. I think me and Helen think that's nonsense, you know, for the same reason we think that technology doesn't make a more, you know, huge moral difference. The fact that a state is using violence rather than individual people doesn't make this, you know, huge moral difference either. So I think our view is kind of like, uh, you know, there's a kind of single fixed set of moral principles. But it just turns out that when we reflect on those principles, we realize that they do permit things um, on occasion which are in fact by, uh, prohibited by custom or convention or international law and norms and that kind of thing. 
So we don't, we don't think there's a kind of schism in morality or anything like that. <laughs> but I had similar sort of thoughts about, um, Walsh is also very famously associated with the sort of dirty hands idea that there are cases in which, you know, whatever you do, you act wrongly. Um, where, and that might be another way of framing the supreme emergency sort of thought is not that morality goes out the window, but just that leaders are put in these positions where they can't help but, but do something immoral. I just don't think that's true. I think in these cases, you don't act wrong. Like if you're justified, you should only do it if you're justified. And if you're justified, you don't act wrongly. That's not to say that you might not infringe people's rights um, and so on. But those things can be justified. And I don't think we should sort of condemn leaders who find themselves in these positions where only by transgressing certain norms um, are they able to prevent these very grave harms. Um, I think that in those cases, they ought to um, transgress the norms. Um, and it would be, be wrong of them not to. What are the duties that attach to bystanders in war? And by bystanders, I mean people who are not actually engaged in war. And I think this is a question that's come up pretty pertinently with the Ukraine crisis, uh, because a lot of people are thinking about what do we owe to people resisting a war of aggression when our countries are not fighting. Uh, so I was wondering what we think about this. It depends a bit, I think, on... Um how we're construing the bystanders' duties. So one way we might think of these is as, uh, as duties to rescue, right? So we each have duties to incur costs in order to prevent harms to others. So not unlimited costs, at some cost, and there's disagreement about how much cost. And so we might think that um, citizens of all countries in this case, so thinking about Russia and Ukraine, have obligations to incur or to suffer certain costs, um, so for example, rising gas prices, food shortages, whatever else might be on the table, up to a certain point that those are just costs that we morality requires us to bear for the sake of saving Ukrainian lives and, and protecting Ukraine's sovereignty. But then there's also the question that um, we raised earlier about um, responsibility. Um, so these might not be always best construed as duties to rescue, but also additionally duties to um, alleviate harms that we're responsible for. Um, and so there's a lot of literature obviously on um, historical injustice in philosophy and the ways in which citizens of, of states can be required to um, disgorge certain benefits which were illicitly obtained through injustice or bear sort of compensatory costs and so on for the victims of those injustices. And given the way in which Western states have historically behaved um, around the world, um, it seems pretty reasonable to think that lots of people living in those countries um, not only have duties of rescue, but also these kind of remedial duties to bear costs for the sake of people who are now suffering wrongs as a result of things like immoral policies that have enabled a country like Russia to obtain the position of power that it has. Um, and we might think that insofar that you know, we've benefited from those policies and we incur obligations to bear costs to alleviate the harms that they, they cause to others and so on. So, I mean, bystanders are sort of um, a bit of an unhappy term, really. So I tend to use bystanders in my work just to refer to people who are kind of wholly uninvolved in a situation and can only serve to make it better. So they can kind of have this positive duty of assistance, but they're, they're, they're not causally implicated. Things, of course, are just much more complicated when it comes to thinking about the way in which citizens of, um, of other countries are implicated in the wrongs that are being perpetrated in Ukraine. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a very good point regarding bystanders. It sort of reminds me of Peter Singer's famous sort of drowning child thought experiment, where my sort of I, I was thinking, well, you know, context is much more complicated in the modern world when regarding responsibility. It can't simply be 
you know, this interactional duty of rescue devoid of institutional backgrounds and historical context. Uh, but I digress. Uh, Jonathan, do you have anything to add? Maybe raise a puzzle, which I think people have been discussing quite a lot recently, which is whether when we have these kind of high profile kind of unusual cases of suffering kind of beamed into our living rooms on the TV, and we respond with kind of, as, as bystanders, with scare quotes for the, for the listener, um, by prioritizing, you know, giving aid or, you know, remedial measures with respect to those victims, whether there are these questions about other ways or alternative means in which we could discharge our duties um, to assist or to, to, um, to make people better off or repair for prior wrongdoing. By, for example, working to, you know, pr providing the same resources for things like global health initiatives or, uh, you know, debt relief or um, you know, political reform, whatever you think the, uh, you know, the mechanisms, whatever you think the optimal mechanisms for protecting people's human rights might be. So, I mean, one challenge is to think about whether, you know, for any quantity of effort or resource that I could put towards saving a smaller number of people in Ukraine, if those resources could be used to save a greater number of people, you know, some unknown victims in, I don't know, sub-Saharan Africa, am I justified in using my resources to provide the smaller quantity of good for the Ukrainian? You know, simply in virtue of the fact that their suffering seems more immediate to me, it seems more unusual. Yeah, it's not just the, the background drip, drip, drip of misery, which I've kind of got used to in the world. Well, I hate to leave you on a bummer, listener, but the ethics of war is not the most cheerful topic. But remember that only by struggling against injustice can we make the world better, even if sometimes the struggle is hard. I'd like to thank our guests for giving their time today. It was an excellent conversation. Keep an eye out for Helen Frau's new book that's forthcoming, Stones and Lies, The Ethics of Protecting Heritage in War, with Derek Mitravers. And be sure to follow her on Twitter at Helen Frau, F-R-O-W-E. I'd also like to thank Jonathan Perry for speaking to us today. Jonathan's published extensively on the ethics of war, but if I had to recommend one of his articles, I would definitely suggest Defensive Harm, Consent, and Intervention in Philosophy and Public Affairs. It is an excellent analysis of a very complex issue. And if you like in-depth analysis of complex issues, well, remember to like and remember to subscribe to the City Politics Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at the City Politics. I'm at GD Blunt, and our absent and much-missed Constantine is at Convos. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. Oh my god, I can't believe I got through a whole episode by myself. Oof, Miss Constantine's brain. I'm just a pretty voice. Should probably just do ASMR videos. Take care, everyone.